on your first deal, a $25,000 assignment as a barely 18 year old on your very first deal. Dude, are you kidding? That is so awesome. Congratulations, Drew. You're a flipping genius. Okay, Drew, nice to meet you. Excited to talk with you. You, you live in Northeast Tennessee, is that right? Yep, that's right. Very good. And you're wholesaling in your backyard market there? Yep. Yeah, just around. I stick to usually about 30, 40 miles from my house. So Okay. Got started just this past summer. So you so about six months in right now? Yeah, that's right. So I uh, I turned 18 back on June 15th. And so it was just out of high school. And I was like, well, you know, I was never really a great student. So I was just looking for stuff to do outside of it. And I came across your page. And so you know, I started watching a bunch of videos and I was doing that for about a month and I started making calls and within like the first week or so I got a, I got my first deal. Wow. At barely 18, got your first deal. Was that on market, off market? Um, it was, it was technically off market at the time, but it popped up right when I went on a contract because yeah. it was an agent I was working with on a past deal that didn't work out. And she's like, Hey, well, I've got something else I want to take a look at. And I was like, Hey, that's great. Send it over. And, uh, I went, I took a look at it and made an offer on it and it got accepted and it was a great price and everything like that. So, yeah. so when the agent brought you that, was it, was it listed yet or was it going to be listed? Yeah, it was going to be listed. She said in like the next week or something like that. Okay. It's like, I'd love to take a look at it before that. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. So we, we would call that a pocket listing, right? Where, yeah, right. You know, the agents got the deal with the seller to list it. They just haven't actually gone public yet. And, uh, and so do you remember, did that agent, what was the commissions with that agent? Did they get the full 6% still? Uh, yeah. So it was, it was like a dual agency thing. So, yeah. you know, after watching your page and everything, I offered them say, Hey, I'd be happy to have you represent me. And they're like, oh, okay. Yeah. Thanks. And so I think that's how I got that, that second one that she sent me because on the first one I offered to have a represent me on it. Okay. Yeah. So if you think about what happens there, that agent's got this pocket listing with a seller. So they meet with a seller. Seller says, yes, I want to list. Yes, I agree to pay a total of 6% commission, for example. Typically, that would get split three and three, three to the listing, three to the buyer's agent. So in the seller's mind, they already have made the commitment to pay the full 6%. And a lot of times sellers don't really care where the 6% goes. They just know, hey, to get my house sold on market, I got to pay 6% commissions. Now the agent has that agreement, that listing agreement, and they haven't gone public yet. They bring it to their investor, you know, you, and then, and then by you letting them represent you, they get that full 6%. So what happens is the conversation looks like this. That agent goes back to the seller and says, hey, you know what, rather than go public and we have to do showings and all of that, I've got an investor and he'll, he'll, he's got a cash offer ready to go right now. If this cash offer works, can we just get this all done without going public, without going on market? And a lot of sellers, especially if it's a distressed property, they're all over that. Like they love that because it's like, great, I can get my deal done. I don't have to wait, don't have to do showings, don't have to deal with any of that inspections. And I've got a cash buyer ready to go right now. Let's go. And then if the number works for the seller, the whole deal can get wrapped up and done without it ever going on market. So, you know, it's such a beautiful thing when that happens. And uh, that's really the power of the relationships. We, I do a lot of interviews like this 
And I would say, I don't know, more than half the time, the deals that come from agents are not the one listed that you originally called about. It's another property that the agent either refers or has, like you, a pocket listing. And so I, I like to say to people, it's never about the deal in hand. It's about the relationship because those relationships are going to turn into deals in the future and ongoing. So like in your case, now that you performed and did the deal, you're now probably that agent's go-to person. So the next time they get another distressed property, guess who they're calling? They're calling Drew because you performed, right? So super powerful. Love that. All right. So let's talk numbers on this one. So this thing she tells, this agent tells you about this deal. She did, did, uh, was it he or she agent? It was a she. Okay. So she tells you about this deal. She probably, did she give you the seller's number? Like, Hey, this is kind of the number. Or did she not tell you a number and you gave the number first? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So she, she gave me a number when she, when she told me about it, she's like, I got this property. She gave me kind of the, like the basic numbers of it. She told me the number and right off the bat, I knew it was either something crazy wrong with it or it was, you know, a keeper. And so I, when I drove out, took a look at it and, you know, I couldn't get inside of it yet, but I just, you know, peeked in the windows. It was, it was really distressed. It's pretty much abandoned. Yeah. So from there, I, you know, I called on the way back and I was like, Hey, I'll take it at full price. It was at a, it was a one twenty, And so one twenty, Okay. Yeah. And it was vacant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The mm -hmm. sellers, it was being rented out, I believe, um, a couple months prior. And then when they left, they were, they were going to fix it up for their mother-in-law who unfortunately passed away. And then that's why it kind of came up listed. They lived, I, I forget, it was like Oklahoma or something like out that. Of state. And so it's, it's exactly what, you know, I look for. And I'm looking for houses. So yeah, it was kind of the, the stars aligned on like one of the first ones for me. And you said you knew it was a deal. How did you know it was a deal? What, what analysis gave you that impression? Yeah. So I, I did some looking and after I first got into that property, the, like the upstairs and then the main floor, they were both finished and it was going to be, that alone was 2,100 square feet. And at 120,000, I mean, in my area, that's already a good deal. But then the, the real kicker was the downstairs wasn't finished, but it was all framed out and getting ready for this mother-in-law. And it was an extra 1,000 square feet down there. So all finished out, it, it's going to end up being like 3,100 square feet, five bed, three bath for like 120,000. And it was on about uh, five and a half acres. So mm. Okay. It, was, it was pretty but, good. But you, but you knew that was a deal because you understood mm -hmm. values in your neighborhood. Like you knew you comped, you did some comps mm -hmm. to get yeah, to an ARV. Yeah, just alone on the, the 2100 for the main floor and the upstairs, it was already going to be a good deal. And then when I found out about the downstairs, yeah. it was just more, more fuel to the fire, so to say. So you knew you had a deal here when she gave that price. You, you were like, that's a deal. Let's go. You locked it up with her at full price. She wrote up the contract for you and everything, right? The agent? Yep, that's right. Yep, got that executed between you and the seller. Now you had that contract. Tell us a little bit about the terms, like earnest money. Did you have an inspection, no inspection? Mm -hmm. How long was the closing date? Yeah, so the the original terms, you know, it was just all cash, 10-day inspection, so I, could, so I could assign it. The earnest money, I believe it was, I think it was $500. Okay. Pretty typical. And so, yeah. So it was pretty straightforward in that sense. And then I had closing out to, to two weeks, just kind of standard. And so when I signed it near the end of my inspection, they were like, we can get this done, but we're going to need a couple more weeks. 
And so it was, I believe it was a month closing from the day we signed, but that's kind of where this deal went a little sideways for a while. So it was, we were going to close in about a week and uh, my cash buyer came back. I was like, Hey, the title company, they need a survey. Do you have one? And so I, I went, called up the agents like, Hey, we need a, we need a survey. And they didn't have one. So in, in my area right now, surveyors are, they're pretty backed up. It was about a month out. So we had to actually push the closing date back a month, which, you know, everybody wasn't really happy about, but it's mm. kind of, what we had to do. And so survey got out there and then the, the part where it really went sideways was we could not find the survey. Like he just disappeared off the face of the earth. The and surveyor so pushed back. Yeah. The surveyor did. Nobody could find them. And so we had to push back another month and get one. But then eventually mm. with that second one, we closed, but that was kind of the big. Why was that a hang up for the cash buyer? It, Cause it was five acres and he just wanted to know where his land, where his land was. No, I think from what he told me, it was actually the the title company who wanted it. Oh, so okay. I just being that like the my first one, it was kind of just something I didn't really account for, which you know now I know, but that's how you get better. Yeah, well, at least it was something where if title was requiring it, then the seller couldn't really be upset at you for not performing. I mean, they're on un, they're unhappy because it's not closing, but it's something that they can kind of deal with at least not, you know, it's not you not performing in some way. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a, it's a title hang up. Yeah. Right from, Which, right from the get go, the, uh, the sellers, they knew I was like wholesaling. Now I kind of told the agent right away. That's just what I was doing. I like to be kind of upfront about what I do. And so after, after that happened, they told me they're like, yeah, I mean, the seller's not very happy, but they understand it's kind of, even if they didn't want to go with you, they'd still need one for closing anyway. So yeah. they, they, it was kind of just, it is what it is. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So around that, let's talk about that for a second, because uh, this comes up quite a bit. Some agents could care less if you wholesale it, some get concerned about it. And so what are some ways to navigate around wholesaling when you're dealing with the agent? So I kind of like to take the approach with the agent, like my cash buyers are my partners. And I try to explain this to agents in a way that will they'll understand really clearly. If you think about the process of what wholesaling is, you're simply a partner with your cash buyer and you're in the acquisitions. Now, it's not a formal partnership. It's a deal-by-deal -deal partnership, right? It's an independent partnership. But if you think about a wholesaler, all they really are is the acquisitions department for a cash buyer. Why, a cash buyer does not want to set up their own acquisitions. They don't want to have people doing marketing and calling and, and making offers and signing contracts. They could, but what they'd rather do is just outsource that to a wholesaler. All you're doing now is you're getting your fee of the partnership up front. What does it matter if you get paid out at closing, get paid at the end of the deal, get paid next month, next year? It doesn't really matter. But the way that you structure it with your partners is you get paid out up front for, for handling the acquisition process. So when I explain this to an agent, after after five minutes, they're like, okay, yeah, whatever, I get it, it's fine, I don't care. As long as the seller gets their fee and as long as I get my commission, that's all fine. Whereas if they think that that's not what you're doing and all you're doing is taking a contract, marking it up and finding a new buyer, that doesn't go over well sometimes with sellers or agents. What they think is they think, we undersold it, we left money on the table, the real market value is $25,000 more we could seller could have made twenty five thousand dollars more, and I could have made 
more commission on $25,000 more. Now I'm bent out of shape. Now I'm disgruntled. Now I'm upset. I don't like this. And it turns turns into a negative situation. So good, Drew. Um, we went off on a little tangent there, but let's keep going with your deal. So you got the contract you said for 120? Yep, that's correct. Okay, 120. You knew you had a deal. So now how did you find your buyer? Yeah, so what I what I do still to this day is I honestly just go on, on Facebook, look at the investor groups, and then you'll either see them on comments of other wholesalers in the area, like what they what they're posting, like, yes, I'm interested, you know, send me a DM, something like that. And so when I made a post in the, in the uh, Facebook group, I got a bunch of comments too. And I think it was, I forget how many it was, but it was something like 20 in the first hour. And so mm-hmm. that's a pretty good indicator that you have you something deal. just off the numbers. Like I didn't, yeah. I didn't have any pictures, anything like that. It was just, just the numbers. And I got about, uh, you know, 20 comments. And so I started reaching out to people. I started calling people. And so I kind of narrowed it down within like the first five days of my inspection to three like really good candidates. And so I walked the property with those with those three. And, you know, I just I kind of just chose one from there. And that's kind of did you did you tell each one, um, give me your highest price or did you say, here's the number I want or how'd you handle that? Yeah. So um, on the it kind of started like with the. With the post I made on Facebook, I just listed it at, a, I was like, I'm asking 155, you know, or best offer, just kind of give me an offer. Like, I want to see, I didn't really know what it's, it was worth, to be honest, either, because it was my first one. So I just wanted to, you know, get bids and see if I was in the right ballpark. And I got one at like 135, and then I got one at 145, which is the one I end up, ended up uh, taking. And then I can't remember what the last one was. It's It's been a little while. But that's pretty cool because at 155, that would have been a $35,000 assignment. Mm-hmm, yeah. I mean, like you that's, had a good that's deal. That's what I was shooting for, but yeah. yeah maybe next yeah. time. And so, but you took, you you ended up taking, you said 145? Yep, that's correct. Yeah. So you ended up taking 145, which is a $25,000 assignment. On your first deal, a $25,000 assignment as a barely 18-year-old on your very first deal. Dude, are you kidding? That is so awesome. Congratulations, Drew. You're a flipping genius. Guys, you know the routine. Leave a comment and say, Drew, you are a flipping genius. Because that's that's super cool. I mean, that would probably be for most 18-year-olds like a year's worth of income at a full-time job, right? I mean, let's be honest. Yeah, it, was, it was pretty incredible. I was, you know, it's a great opportunity to learn and, you know, just keep moving forward. Yeah. And again, um, you know, it's really funny because a lot of times when I do like these interviews, it seems super lucky because for a lot of people, they grind away for like six months, eight months before getting their first deal. You jump in, take a month learning, pick up the phones and start calling. And then within a a couple of weeks, land this amazing deal, right? Didn't you say it was like a week or two, you got this first deal? Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember what number it was exactly, but I think it was like the third or fourth house that I I called. (laughs) Now you do know that that's not normal, right? Yeah, I know. It's I okay. feel like now, now I'm, I'm six months in. Now I'm feeling the the grind of it, trying to get yeah. like that first deal again, kind of thing. Yeah, that's the thing that I tell people. Like, you you may shoot out of the gate and do an amazing deal, but there's no way around going through the lump, the lumps, right? There's no way around going through the roller coaster up and down until you dial in enough systems and processes to be consistent, which takes some time, it takes effort, takes leadership, but you know, you, you got the, the proof of concept 
out of the right out of the gate really quickly and not just sort of proof of concept, but like massive proof of concept with a $25,000 profit. So yeah, I know, I know for sure it works now. So yeah, it's (laughs) it's definitely reassuring. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the goal now is going to be, how do you repeat that process on a consistent basis month in and month out? Um, That's going to be the work that you have to do, Mm -hmm. right? That's, that's going to be your challenge now, but yeah, definitely. But that's super exciting. Um, you know, how how did that impact your life? Like what what change did that make for you as an 18-year-old? Yeah. So just the twenty-five thousand dollars alone, like to me, just the just that one check, it wasn't a whole lot. Like it didn't mean a whole lot to me. But what it meant was like in the future, like this is this is viable, like this can actually happen. Like you can do all the watching, like you can watch all the videos on YouTube, do all that. But until you actually do it and you know for yourself that it's possible, it's, it's a massive uh, vote of confidence, really. And that's, that's what it's been to me more than the money, honestly. More than the money. Yeah. Well, that's really awesome. Drew, what else would you, would you say would be your biggest piece of advice to somebody just starting out? Yeah. So I kind of, I kind of boil it down to two things. Um, one is like, I take rejection pretty personally and I'm getting better at it. But when I first started out, I'd be taking the nose and I'd be beating myself up over it. But I just, I kind of noticed like later in and I'm not completely over it yet. So I don't want to say this, you know, but it's, you can't afford to take it personally because if you do, you get, you get bummed out. And then in that, you know, couple month lump, if you don't get one lucky like me, then you're going to end up leaving the business. But if you can kind of detach yourself from, you know, the rejection, it's, it's a big asset that you have that you can, you know, just keep making those offers and you will eventually get deals. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you recognize that. That is a really good, good point. I think that's probably the reason why people don't make five offers a day. Like I, I preach that from the rooftops, five offers a day, five offers a day, but yet very few people actually do it. They, they very few, it's really surprising how few people actually make five offers a day and so I always ask myself, well, why? Why don't people do it? And I think the only thing I can come up with is the rejection is just too much to handle because people really can't deal with 80 no's, 80 rude people on the phone, 80 people telling you you're you're crazy and stupid and go pound sand. They can't handle that. It, it feels it's too much negativity. They take it personally. They make it mean something about them. And so then they just don't do it. And being able to let that roll off of you, not take it personally, like you said, not make it mean anything about you, then allows you to just kind of go, it allows you to do the work without attaching to the negative outcome of rejection. I also feel like kind of going with my, it kind of attaches to my first point, but another point I want to make is you have to you can't like quit. Basically it's the biggest part of wholesaling that I found. Like you have to be going, be willing to go through that one in a hundred conversion rate to get eventually to that one in 10 conversion rate. And I just think that's kind of, that's where people miss out is when they're like, Oh man, nothing's happening at that one in a hundred, but you have to get to that to get, you know, to the one in 10. Yeah. And then what's amazing is when you are doing the, the, like you're getting, let's say one out of a hundred. So you make a hundred offers, get one deal. Well, in the process of making a hundred offers, you you improve your negotiating, you improve your your demeanor, your ability to overcome objections, the your tonality, all of the things start to improve 
So then your next set of a hundred offers, you're that much better and you're that much better and you're that much better. Pretty soon it's like the 10,000 hour rule. The studies show that in any field, if you put 10,000 hours of practice in, then you're expert level. You're in the top performing level in the world once you get your 10,000 hours. So like piano or whatever it is. And so the same thing applies to us. You put your hours in and you will get better and better and better. And then there's nothing that can happen on that phone that you don't know how to handle because you've just put in all the work and you practice so long. Right. But you got to get through that, that initial phase where you do suck and you do sound bad and you don't know what to say and you don't know how to handle it. Right. You got to just get through it. Yeah. So good. Right. That, that's awesome. I love that advice. That's fantastic advice. But Drew, again, congratulations on your deal. 25,000 on your first deal is amazing. You Thank know, you. keep up, keep up the hard work. 